0: Hello, uh, this is Megan, if you didn't know. Um, thank you so much for tuning in again for another episode of Handsome Time. I absolutely loved chatting with Tom Lord LG this week. Uh, He's such a kind, giving person. Um, one thing that I do want to preface is... I didn't edit any of this um, and it's quite a long chat and there were probably bits that could have been edited out. Uh, I am on time constraints. uh, So I have just gone ahead and given you the full unedited version. So embarrassing, but I mentioned, uh, so Tom is originally from Miami. Uh, at the moment, he's, he's moved to Texas and living in Texas. And I had thought that I had seen on a recent Kardashian episode that Kim Kardashian had bought a house in Miami. It was actually Malibu. Uh, so I realised that I wholly hobbied that <laughs> thought together. So that's very awkward. Uh, He was lovely, he didn't even say anything (laughs) to correct me, but I'm aware of it, so that's very embarrassing, but that's fine, and I hope you enjoy this long, unedited chat with the amazing Tom Ward Elgin. Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of The Hansen Hour. A podcast, All Things Hanson, where we are slowly but surely working our way through the 1997 middle of nowhere era. And today we have one of the biggest names in the industry, Tom Lord LG. For those that don't know, I'm just going to summarize straight from the source, which is Tom's website, and I'm going to link it into the show notes so you can go and check it out. So Tom is a three-time Grammy Award winner. He has an extensive list of certified multi-platinum landmark albums and singles, and has worked with bands that we all know, including Blink-182, Pink, The Rolling Stones, Fall Out Boy, Weezer, and I saw on your website, Marilyn Manson and The Cure, which are the best. Um, And also the thing that I love about Tom, he's got an incredible range of YouTube videos, Um, I saw pop up on my suggested feed that he has done a masterclass session that you can enroll in. He's very generous with his time and we are so, so um, lucky to be having some of his time and energy today. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Yeah, happy to be here. Greetings from Austin, Texas. And we're sitting in, I am sitting in my studio called Spank Studios and uh, happy to be here. Yeah, and, and, is- and I always like to refer to, I mix everything from Hanson to Manson and everything in between.
0: Yeah. And I love that. Because there's
1: pretty much two ends of the spectrum there. You know, <laughs> you have the keepers of the groove, which is Hanson. And then you have the kind of goth, hard rock, Marilyn Manson. Oh, uh,
0: The stories that I'm sure you could tell, which won't fit into this, small podcast but wow to be a slide on the wall in your life Tom so incredible but first things first because this podcast obviously it's a handsome podcast um and we're a bunch of handsome fans but we're also learning a lot about the industry as we go along which has been a really sort of incredible part of the process so just grassroots style can you tell us what your job is and how that plays into um recording a record
1: sure right so i started my career as a recording engineer i dabbled in production and actually had quite a bit of success at it but realized um what my passion was really for was mixing and what mixing is is i work together with the artist and the producer and i blend together the final version that you would hear on on a CD or or that you would uh, stream or download, you know, basically the final version of the song that you would hear. Um, the way best way I've been able to describe it, it's very similar to film editing, where the film they shoot all the scenes in the film, and then they hire a film editor based on his body of work, uh, based on his t- you know his taste, how he sees things, to put together. final version of a film it should be seamless so my work um, I'd like to think you shouldn't really be able to hear it um, even though there is a specific sound that I have and I try to achieve um, it's very similar so the song has been recorded it's been recorded on multi-track tape back then it was recorded on multi-track tape you know so like a bass drum would be on a single channel a snare drum would be on a single channel all the parts of a drum set usually take up about 12 to 15 tracks of audio, you know, and again, so you have to balance it and you can manipulate this audio and your imagination is really your brick wall. So, so again, it's as in film where a film editor, a a great film editor, you don't notice them, but you notice the bad film editors. It's very similar to that with music. So I always like to say, and I'll ask you, Megan, I mean, have you ever bought a CD by an artist? And you listen to it and you go, this just doesn't sound very good. Or there's something not right. Have you ever done that?
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: I didn't mix that one.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, so my work should be, you know, even though there is a certain flavor and style that that I, I bring to the table, um, it, it should be invisible. You know, mm-hmm. so again, I work together with the artist and I blend together all these bits to make the final version so it'd be the drums bass guitars keyboards all the vocals and you know we've we uh manipulate them and you know um yeah and just try to get everything to sound really great you know and again i'd like to also say that that the way that i work is i'm here to serve the music so the music has its identity and that really can't be changed and i've always said You can't screw up a great song. I'm just fortunate enough that I've mixed some really great songs, but you can't screw them up. Like even the worst engineer in the world, you know, would be hard pressed to screw up Mbop.
0: Yeah. Oh my goodness. So, uh, and we're going off track because I do all the time. So when you hear something like Mbop for the very first time, um do you sort of have when we're talking about imagination are you like writing down ideas and thinking oh my goodness like I could do this I could do that do you see it's a hit straight away what is it like the rawness that you get compared to what it comes out (laughs) so
1: (laughs) I'll be 100% straight with you and I don't even think I've I've told the band
0: okay (laughs) so when they
1: sent me um I believe Steve Greenberg sent me the rough mixes of the album and, you know, they were considering me to mix it. And, um, I had a conversation with my manager and, I, I just felt that the, it wasn't my flavor. Mm. And, um, to, to be quite honest, I mean, I, I, I was like kind of lukewarm about it and it was my manager at the time who, who, who said, no, this is something I I think that you'll really enjoy doing and will benefit from you touching. So based on her that discussion I had with her, I took the job. But my initial impression was to 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 go elsewhere because at that that around that era, you know, I was doing you know blink and some forty one and you know that <laughs> style of band. It's, it's it's totally different to what Hanson did. I'm obviously very happy that I did middle of nowhere. It, it turned out, you know, I mean, I, I think I got one or two songs in, and I was like, "Oh, this is really good," you know. Yeah. My my opinion immediately changed, um, and uh, and again, happy to to have done it.
0: Yeah, so because we've heard Hanson and talk about this, and and the label, the and the more I talk to people from the label and sort of in the industry and people that would having working on this album, they really wanted to make a point of this not being like bubblegum pop or a boy band, and so they were really looking for people to work on it that had that rock element. So I found like this little quote <laughs> in my research that says, Tom Lord Algy is the younger brother of Chris Lord Algy. and between them they appear to have cornered the market in mixing heavy in-your-face commercial rock which is I guess what we're talking about from the offset. It doesn't really sound like your cup of tea or even um, the style of music that you would have a hand in creating. Um, so it must've been really different for you, um, you know, or, or was that what they wanted? They wanted someone that had that sort of rock background or metal to background to be able to play, put that into the mix.
1: You know, the, again, that the conversations, you know, from my memory uh, of the conversations between uh, Steve Greenberg and I and, you know, and then when Stephen Laroni came down was basically what you said, you know, they they wanted to make sure that they, you know, the bubblegum factor was removed, you know, that it had a little bit of edge. Um You know, so. The style of music is wasn't this similar to me. Okay. So starting my career, I was working with, you know, artists like Steve Winwood. Um, you know, again, another artist that does very similar kind of RB-ish, you know, type type music, you know, R and B pop ish, I should say. Mm-hmm. You know, but you know, Winwood and Hanson, there's a lot of similarities, especially in instrumentation. They're both very soulful, you know, RB kind of based, you know, lots of ham and organ and again just great vocals you know i was also did an album with rick astley so i was familiar with that you know that area of music there was a, a time in my career my early career where i was doing a lot of what we call adult contemporary so it would have been you know winwood rick astley peter satara mm-hmm. uh you know that type of uh alana miles that type of stuff yeah. and, then, and then later in the early 90s or maybe mid 90s. Um, it kind of started to shift a little bit. I did a band called the crash desk dummies and then right after that, I did a band called live yeah. and the band called the live album I did was a, called throwing copper and that kind of changed everything and, yeah. and that really brought me over to the area that I really wanted to work in which was the rock stuff. So from the live throwing copper. You know, that brought in some 41 and Weezer and, and Blink-182 and the list would just go on. I mean, literally from Live Throwing Copper, I got 20 years of, of that style of work. You know, Hanson being one of them, you know, I mean, they, again, they, they wanted it to be a little, you know, a little edgy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely, definitely comes through, I think. I think it all worked out really, really well. So what was that process like mixing middle of nowhere was it was it a long process for you or was it a relatively easy
1: the, um middle of nowhere i mean back in those days i was mixing completely analog i think that we probably mixed that whole album in a week you know five to seven days um but that's not unusual i mean okay. i mixed enema at the state by blink 182 in three days oh wow you know wow. so back then it was really like the the hardest mix was the first one when you're kind of dialing in the sounds and and figuring out you know what the band is looking for and then once you kind of have that sound up on the console you know you just go to the next song you make some adjustments yeah. you know and and it's like boom you're you're knocking them out in 3 or 4 hours you know depending you know uh, on the parties involved so a uh, middle of nowhere i uh, hadn't met the boys they never came down no. you know or they i don't know if for what reason but they 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 uh, they didn't come down so it was really uh greenberg steve greenberg myself and steve laroni yeah um you know did the bulk of the work and, and and again steven greenberg was like my point guy he was you know like i'd play him the stuff and he would comment on it and it would go from there and then you know i guess from there they played it for the band mm-hmm. you know and uh i don't remember you know having to like come back and and redo a lot of stuff if anything yeah. You know, so the band's yeah. comments, you know, whatever the band's comments would would were would have been minimal at that time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was going to ask if they were um, coming into the studio, but I had read somewhere that it was just uh, Steve, both the Steves coming in to sort of oversee it. Um, Correct. So they weren't really, yeah, they weren't really popping in um to to check in on it. it do you usually have the artist there with you or
1: do they just- in those days yeah in those days so one of the reasons I I I moved to Miami uh I was living in Los Angeles well I'm from originally from New York um and I was doing a ton of work in Los Angeles so I just thought, well, well, why not move to Los Angeles? So I moved to Los Angeles. And, of course, it's literally, as soon as I moved to Los Angeles, I got a three-week booking in New York City. I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Never fails. But it was the Dave Matthews Band. Um, it was their first album, but nobody had, had ever heard of them. But it, it turned out to be a, a good move. I mean, I moved to Los Angeles, and it came right back to New York and mixed Under the Table and Dreaming, and, and then went went home to Los Angeles. But all of my work was in Los Angeles. I didn't really love Los Angeles. I didn't really like living there. The one thing I liked about being in Los Angeles was that my brother was there. Actually, Mm -hmm. at that time, two of my brothers were living in Los Angeles that I liked. um, And we had a blast. Um, But I wasn't really digging it. I got hired by Island Records to mix an album for a band called tripping Daisy. And Island Records had this great recording studio in South Beach in Miami, Mm -hmm. Miami Beach. And and they the band asked me, hey, you, you know, if you come down and mix in Miami Beach, we get a discount on the studio because our record company owns it. And I, you know, I was like, Yeah, two weeks in South Beach, let's do it. You know, so I went down there and fell in love with the place and and pretty much never left. Yeah. Um, you know, stayed at that studio. I was at that studio for 20 years. Um, and it was awesome. So I saw an opportunity when, from the first time I went to, to Miami Beach. I thought, wow, what a great experience it's going to be for bands to come down here. They spend their, you know, they bust their hump making the record, and they usually do it in the city they're living in or in Los Angeles, and they have to deal with record companies and their girlfriends and their significant others. I said, how awesome would it be for them to have kind of like a, you know, and then they go on tour and work their butts off. How awesome would it be for them to have sort of like a mini vacation while we're mixing the album. They come to Miami beach. There's no freaking record companies down here. You know, they can go out and be bands, you know, drink themselves silly, you know, and then in the day they come back to the studio and we do our work and they're really focused on what we're doing. And it worked out great, yeah. you know, for years and years and years. I mean, I remember doing a Sarah McLaughlin record yeah. and she came down and spent two weeks and, and literally I had a prior off the beach. All right, Sarah, I'm ready for you. You know, so it, it turned out to be a great thing for the artists They they kind of have a little vacation. And then when the record's done, they go and do their thing and they're back to work, yeah. you know, but th- that was those days. Nowadays, it's just as easy, just it's easier just to send files around, you know, yeah. so they send me the song. I'll do the mix and then I send them the file and they, they literally I hit send and they have it like five seconds later.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, back
1: then we didn't have that option. Um, so. Back then, yeah, it was not unusual. I probably had eighty to ninety percent of the stuff I was working on. The artists would come down, you know, because yeah. at that at that point, who didn't want to come to Miami Beach? And, mm-hmm. and Hansen was also was one of them. I I remember, I don't remember what album it was that I mixed for him, but they all came down, brought their families, you know, and we would have barbecues at my house. And I remember that one of the barbecues, they brought all the kids over. And there had to be like twelve or thirteen kids, you know. Like these guys, they're multiplying. Yeah. You know, I'm like, you guys trying to, you're trying to raise a new rhythm section, right? <laughs> you know. But I don't know exactly how many kids they had, but you know, all their wives, and we yeah. just had a blast.
0: Yeah, that's. It, it. Are you from Brooklyn, by the way?
1: is it <laughs> i'm you, from the new jersey part of new york right
0: because you've still got that like when you yeah. are from new york it's like after all this time you've still got Yeah, that. forget about it yeah yeah. it
1: doesn't go away
0: <laughs> i love it um, And it gets
1: even it gets even worse when i go up there you know and i'm around <laughs> with my know. buddies
0: yeah, yeah you know
1: the accent gets even stronger but yeah the accent never goes away yeah. especially when i see coffee coffee i
0: love yeah. it yeah <laughs> um so because it's funny, we were just talking before I hit record, we were talking about Miami and celebrity um, because you were based in Miami for like 20-odd years. You're now in Austin, Texas, and I was saying, oh, I just watched a um, – card uh, keeping up with the Kardashians or whatever episode where Kim just bought a house in Miami, like recently this season. And uh, I was saying, Oh, it's probably good that you got out because of the paparazzi and everything, everything was Miami is going to, you know, go go up now. (laughs) And you said that you had a really cool or like something about the paparazzi they had come. Yeah. Yeah. What was that story?
1: Well, we we did middle of nowhere. And and again, that was with Laroni and Greenberg. And then they sent down the Snowed In.
0: Oh my God! Like a
1: yes. couple of months later.
0: Did you do Snowed In as
1: well? I did, yeah. Oh, which was a Christmas album. Which again, God. I believe was another one that I believe that was another one I mixed on my own. I can't remember. It might have been the next album they did, the next studio album.
0: Yeah.
1: Where um where they came down. Okay. Um, and and this was that at this time they they didn't bring their families, just the three brothers uh, you know, um, uh, Zach, Ike, and, and uh, Taylor mm-hmm. and, um, and this, I'm going to say it was probably 2000, um, uh, maybe 2001, you know, but they came down and were, were, were present for the mixing. Um, and I remember leaving the studio one day and they're just being like, 100 people outside the studio, I mean, obviously a gaggle of girls, <laughs> a gaggle of young girls, you know, and then, yeah, you know, there's photographers and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, I, I showed the guys where the back door was, you know, mm-hmm. and they would just leave through the alleyway, you know, and I, I would provide interference. Like, I would walk out the front door and, you know, yeah, just kind of make some odd comments that would, that would keep everybody focused on me while the guys were departing. Through the back door of the studio, yeah. of of
0: so was of the that usual? Um, you know, we we saw Middle of Nowhere go to like pretty. You, I'm first of all, you've worked with very many famous artists, but Middle of Nowhere sort of had this weird um, moment in pop culture and the world where it really catapulted and took over. You know, a lot. It was huge. Um, and in terms of that sort of celebrity, was that usual for to be ushering people out the back door? Or I, I think too, because the fan base was so young and maybe that, how was that yeah, I
1: f- for you? I don't know how they got wind of it. One of the great things about the studio I was working in Miami Beach was, was um because Miami is like, at that point, it wasn't really known for, you know, like, it, what, there wasn't a big music-making community. Uh, so, again, like, example, like, I mixed a, an album for Mick Jagger, and he just came and went. Like, in other words, every day he'd just walk in the front door, and, and there was no issue. He never got bothered. <laughs> um, you know, somebody got wind of it,
0: mm.
1: you know, so it was, it was unusual. But having said that, I, I've done albums in the past, You know, uh, I did an In Excess album. I actually did the last In Excess album with Mike Hutchins, that Mike Hutchins, before he passed away, in London. And and it was a similar thing where, like... And and I just thought it was... Even for that band, was quite odd. But, I mean, I remember walking out of the studio every day, Mm. and and there was just gaggles of paparazzi everywhere, you know? (laughs) So, but, yeah, somebody... You know, in Miami, normally it wasn't an issue, but again, somebody got wind of of Hanson being there, and 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 there you have it. You know, mm. and the next thing you know, they're they're camped out in front of the studio. So, I mean, having said that, I mean, the studio was in a hotel, you know, and it was a block from the beach, and you know,
0: yeah,
1: it is what it is.
0: Yes. <laughs> so, did you notice the album that I think you're talking about was called This Time Around? that's right yeah i knew that you had worked on that one didn't know about Snowden, which was a surprise god that album is still like everyone loves that album it's such a good album um and the the mix on that too just like in terms of the, the way that that makes you feel like that whether it's a christmas album or not i would say that that mix there's something about it that is so I don't know does something to your heart every time i hear it every time i hear that the first few um like beats of "Snowing," come on I'm like oh my gosh like there's something about that one in particular that we all love so yes another great great job
1: <laughs> yes it, it's uh <laughs> I, I gotta say it's, it's always odd mixing christmas albums in like june yeah. and july yeah. you know because that's when you're making them
0: yeah well, you know. just, it's like this, the middle of summer yeah yeah the spirit was there um so this time around um and then was that it or are you still you're not still working with them that was the just the three albums
1: i'm still working with the guys
0: you are you're still doing it oh yeah, <laughs> okay.
1: yeah. so i mean look they you know one they've been very loyal to me i and thank yeah. you i love them i love them you know they're they're dear friends Mm. Um, and you know they've made some records without me, mm. you know, and some of their best stuff was without me. Um, but I, that's okay, you know. <laughs> I don't mind. I um, it over the years, it's been, you know, it might have been a couple of songs here and a couple of songs there. I mixed Anthem, the album, the mm. entire album Anthem. Mm. I did the live broadcast or the live. DVD for Anthem. Yeah. And I know that I've mixed uh, you know, maybe two or three months ago we did an yet yet another version of Umbop.
0: Oh, um, the busted one.
1: They the they did a, a new version of Umbop yeah. sung in the key
0: that oh, they
1: they perform it now.
0: It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know,
1: so they re recorded it. It's a couple of tones pitched yeah. down. Um, and and I know that maybe eight or nine, maybe a year ago there was three or four songs that I've mixed for. I don't know what it's for. Yeah, you know, um, I ran it to Taylor. In, we have that South by Southwest uh, event here, which is a music and film event.
0: Yeah,
1: um, Taylor is the president of our chapter for the Recording Academy. Yeah. I, I went to a recording Academy party and, uh, and Taylor was there. Um, so it was, it's always good to see him. And, and, um, of course that when I, I told them I was moving to Austin, they were very excited because they're not that far from Austin. They're in Oklahoma. Mm. I don't know how many hour drive it is, but they were like, that's great. You know, now we can come down to you. It's a lot easier than coming to Miami. Yes. I said, but not as scenic, <laughs> but but yeah, I, I saw Taylor at a, at the event and uh you know it's it's always good to see him he's he's they're just they're just awesome guys and uh and yeah, yeah. but yes i i do i still work with hansen they are the keepers of the groove as i refer to them they're the only cats that are just making these just great kind of classic r&b at records you know drums bass guitar hammond organ let's go yeah. you know and not to mention the fact that you know their harmonies are ridiculous you know they they never disappoint they're just amazing singers and just very talented musicians
0: yeah yeah oh absolutely i love that they um i was talking to steve greenberg who who has also been on this podcast and i was really um interested to hear that um they have released some of their because you know that they've got their own Independent label now that they release on but some of their yes. stuff they had released through steve greenberg's label which is s curve records yes. or something similar um and that was um taylor's tinted windows project i'm not sure if you I,
1: I i yes i worked on that
0: yeah that's what i was gonna ask yeah okay oh,
1: cool. which was all Remind me who was in that band. It was, it was, was it Bunny Carlos? <laughs> I
0: know. Um, the, the guy from Smashing Pumpkins,
1: right? Uh,
0: James, I think. Um, and then oh, and it's so so horrible, um, that I can't think of his name. Um, but someone Adam who's, um, Adam from um Fountains of Wayne, who I yeah. think passed away. Oh,
1: poor guy, yeah. yeah. Adam Schlesinger, he passed away. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but I want to say, I thought it had the guy
0: from. Cheap uh, I don't know. like.
1: Bunny Carlos was but, the drummer in Cheap Trick. Okay. I I thought, I forgot. Yeah, I'd have to check and see who was in that band. But yeah, I did the. T- it was very good.
0: Yeah, I thought I loved. I loved that. Like it
1: was. It was good stuff. And let me. And now I, You're. You're right. It was Adam. Who was awesome. Adam was a great guy. I did a lot of work with fountains of Wayne obviously did Stacy's mom.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, they're, they're a big hit and he was just the nicest guy. You know, I, I, when, when I have the artists come down, I have them sign the, uh, I try to get them to sign my gold records, you know, and, uh, he, he signed my, my, uh, Stacy's mom gold records. mixed this Helen keller you know he was a funny guy so yeah when he passed away i was was very sad about that yeah but but yeah and it was i could see that when i heard the uh the tinted window stuff i was like yeah this is a good collaboration i thought it was
0: no i i agree very left of field collaboration um not at all and I think that that's what made it awesome. But the sound too was a it was a unique sound. It was different. It wasn't what you know was I don't know. It wasn't what I would have expected. But I absolutely loved it. Um, yeah, and I'll be sad um, that there'll be no more tinted windows albums because I thought that was great and they had a Christmas album not tinted windows Hanson they did another Christmas album just recently called finally yes
1: I I I saw that I did I did not work on that one but yes I I I excuse me when you reached out to me I I just refreshed my memory about their catalog Mm. you know and I went and looked up there I'm like oh shit they did another Christmas album oh is it okay I say shit
0: Uh Absolutely. I'm Australian. And like, it's really hard for me to try. I I hope everyone listening can appreciate how hard it is for me to speak eloquently because (laughs) Australia. You're doing
1: doing a fine job. Thank
0: you. I'm trying. But yes, no, you can absolutely say that. It's fine.
1: Um, Now the boys don't curse. I don't i can't remember if i've ever heard them curse
0: i'm sure
1: they don't they do they do <laughs> i want to say they drink beer they had that um, um hops yeah for a minute i remember they sent me a couple of cases of it and it was darn good
0: oh yeah see we don't get it here in australia yeah
1: I don't, I don't know if they still make it but when they came out with it they sent me a couple of cases which i thought was great i know they they used to smoke cigars <laughs> because when we did what was the this time around album they, they, they came so. I love those guys. I love them so much. Um, I really do. So I had this, the house I lived in in Miami Beach, I I was very blessed Mm -hmm. and very fortunate. I bought it in 1999 and it was on the water. It was a waterfront house. And um, so of course when they came down, I I, I had to have them come over and they, they, they came over and had a wonderful gazebo out by the water and we sat out there and they smoked cigars. I don't smoke cigars, but they all sat out there and smoked cigars. And I just told them straight up, I says, I thanked them, you know, for hiring me for middle of nowhere. And I told them, I said, this, you see this house? I said, this is the house that Hanson bought or the house that Hanson built. And I always referred to it that right up to the very last day, because the royalties I got from middle of nowhere, I used to buy this house Whoa. and it was a fabulous house. So every time that the, the Hanson guys came down, I always made sure that we had, you know, a dinner at the house in their honor. You know, and I always refer to this, this is the house that Hanson built. That's
0: incredible. So, is it your best selling? It couldn't be your best selling album then to date. No, no, no.
1: <laughs> no. But at that but time, it, I, you know, I have to. T- at that time, I don't. Re- you know, honestly, I don't remember.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. I what did Middle of Nowhere end up selling? How many copies? Wow.
0: I don't remember off the top of my head either, but it, yeah, we could, go, I could Google it. but
1: <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, uh, I mean, I would say that it's probably in the top 10. Yeah. I think the biggest, uh, the Santana supernatural, I think might be the biggest seller and then Avril Lavigne let go. Hmm it's it's somewhere you know so there's you know yeah it's somewhere in that but but it just happened to be that that you know when i was looking at houses the first royalty check came in right, <laughs> and it just happened to work out very 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 well and
0: do you still get like even so we're like 30 years in how does that work do you still get royalties from an album that like is right. there a time limit so
1: this, I, you know, I don't have the information answering that question. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Um, I sure hope not. Mm. I, I sure hope not. Look, I can tell you that you know, so you know, I was very fortunate. I referred to I was mixing records and making records in the days when people were buying albums and CDs, yeah, you know, yeah. so up until the mid 2000s, you know it was wonderful. It was the land that the days of milk and honey and mm. the sun was shining and, you know, the royalties were coming in and I, I never counted on it, but it was always great when when that money came in, you know, um, and then, you know, the file sharing stuff happened and, and the royalties kind of like, it, 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 you know, it, they, they weren't as um, lucrative. Mm. And then I would say over the past six or seven years, the in the united states they passed the music modernization act um which changed how uh, streaming and and you know things like itunes and 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 uh how royalties were collected and i saw a, a big uptick again in 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 royalties which is wonderful and and again i've always considered that stuff to be found money Um, so I never count on it as part of my income. And when the checks come in, it's just like, wow, that's a great surprise. But yes, you know, now with the streaming and stuff, I've seen an increase in royalties. So I, I, I think it's pretty safe to say, you know, that those royalties are there, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. there's not a time limit on them. Yeah. I never, you know, I mean, I'd have to go through the, I have to go through the statements to see, Mm. you know, to be honest, you know, when the statement comes in, I really just look at the check. (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. I, I you know but it 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 it, it, it they're so the, because there's pages and pages of here's you know here's the, here's the, the artist here are the songs mm. and here's what you're getting paid
0: such a weird thing to think how that's calculated so I had Hanson's um publisher on for this particular time period and we were sort of musing about this too like you know back then like because it is just a physical record now there's so many different streaming devices, how they actually like keep track of it. She didn't know, <laughs> she, you know, like yeah. who knows it, how they, they do it. It's incredible. The
1: accountants know.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: The accountants know that's their job. I mean, I used to calculate it back in the days when they were selling CDs, it was roughly a nickel. You know what I mean? So, you know, when, um, example, um, my wife she's one of her first albums was enema of the state and i go well thanks for the nickel
0: yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) you know and and i i have you know i have a lot of friends that that you know when i explained to them you know back in in the mid-2000s how file sharing is really screwing it up you know because this is an artist's livelihood you know they were like okay I'm going to stop. I'm going to buy records from now on, you yeah. know, because they realized that, like, look, you know, music has value and. The artists are the ones that suffer, I, 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 you know, and look, of course, you know, I have some some skin in the game as well, but the artists have a lot of skin in the game and, you know, what they did to survive was they changed their business model. So how it used to work was bands would make an album, and then they would tour to promote the album, and, and the album was their bread and butter, you know. And then it switched. The bands ma- would make an album, and then the tour was their bread and butter. Yeah. In, in other words, they would make an album just so they could go out and tour, and that's how they made their money yeah. was through touring and, and merchandise, you know. And it, it still holds true to this day. The the, the records, you know, or album sales are in comparison to what they're making, touring is, you know, nothing.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, actually when I did like a little teaser on my social medias for this, um, episode, there was one of my lovely listeners, um, by the name of Jennifer, um, who reached out because she's a huge fan of yours. And I asked Hey
1: Jennifer, him, yay, Are, Jennifer. Hey, how you doing Jennifer, how you doing?
0: <laughs> she's also from, I think, she, I believe she's from Oklahoma. Um, and I said, oh, you should come and meet him, come and co-host with me, like jump in. Um, the timing didn't work out, but I said, um, send me like a few questions and I can ask on your behalf. And she some of them you've already answered because it was about, like, the changing industry and things like that. But if you don't mind, just to finish up, do you mind I just ask two of her questions?
1: Oh, you can ask as many as you like. <laughs>
0: um, so th- I thought that this was a really good one just, um, you know, in, in general um when starting out in your career what strategies or approaches did you do that you would recommend to effectively secure your first professional mixing job so what were you sort of doing that sort of got you in and got you that first sort of gig
1: (laughs) well I kind of came in through the back door, it, 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 so I'll explain to you, you know, as far as my career goes, and especially the early part of my career and, and the success that I've had, it can really all be um, kind of focused on, on really the sacrifices that were made by one individual or two individuals. One, one was my mom who when I was 16, my mom's, my mom's passed away when she was a professional jazz musician, jazz singer. And and she, you know, after she raised us, and probably from the time I was about nine or 10 years old, I'm the youngest of six, she went back to, to music. So I can remember music being around the whole time. And, and and she had a jazz trio, and they're always rehearsing. And when they would take a break and and, and, and have lunch, when I was a teenager, of course, like the bass player would come downstairs and here, Tom, try some of this, you know, and hand me a joint, (laughs) you know, so, and mom signed me out of school when I was 16, because I had an offer to go out and do touring, to tour with a band and do sound. Um, But the second person is my brother, Chris. So my, Chris is my older brother and Chris, my mom, through her network of music industry people got Chris a job at a recording studio where he started by cleaning toilets and making coffee. Um, You know, he started at, at zero and worked his way up to becoming an engineer and a mixing engineer. I was touring and enjoying it. And during these years, Chris started to make a name for himself, you know, working out of a studio called Unique Recording in New York City. And he kept bugging me saying, you know, fuck, fuck this touring shit. You know, come and work in the studio. I could use your help, and I think you'd be really good at it. So I was fortunate, like literally, when I made the decision to come and work with Chris in the studio, I just walked in, and I was hired as an engineer. I didn't have to clean toilets. I didn't have to sell myself. Um, I took Chris's overflow. So example... I'm probably in the studio for a couple of weeks. You know what I mean? And I'm shadowing Chris. I would shadow what he was doing. And we were doing James Brown. He was. We were recording the song called Living in America. Uh, the producer's name was Dan Hartman, late Dan Hartman, another just fantastic guy who I did a lot of work with. And James is in there, is doing his vocal. And my brother's sitting at the console, and I'm like, tapes and record and then Chris just gets up and walks out so I just get up and sit in the seat you know and just pick it up you know and I finished the, I did whatever we had to do and had to punch a couple of bits in and you know and and later on I was like Chris what the fuck (laughs) you know why did you leave and he goes I had to see what you're made of you know but I mean I because I was on watching what was going on I just I I was able to just take over the session and I learned a lot. Um, So I didn't have to Mm. sell myself. Um, In other words, because I, 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 my brother's pedigree, you know, or my brother had had kind of vouched for me. Uh, Another quick story. I got a phone call. It was a Sunday morning, maybe nine or 10 in the morning. And Chris calls me up. He's like, Hey, I got these guys are coming in from England to work with me. They flew over just to do So I could do this mix. He goes, you got to go do the mix for me. So I can't do it. I go, why not? He goes, I got arrested. (laughs) And anybody that knows the Lord Algae brothers, you know, knows that anything to do with the law has to do with speed and an automobile, you know, (laughs) and he got nicked, you know, for speeding and his license was suspended, you know, and it was a Sunday and they held him until Monday. But he had to go do this mix. So he's just like, just go there and say you're me. And I did. You know, I went, did the mix. The band was super, super happy. You know, after, you know, after they signed off on the mix, I, I told them the story and they, they, they're they like, we don't care who you are. You know, we, we love what you did. You know, two months later, they were like, hey, you know, we got hired to do a, a song for a film. We want you to produce it. Okay. So I did it. The band was called OMD. The song was called If You Leave. It was the first song I ever produced. And I got the gig, because I pretended to be my brother.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> You know, so yeah. it, it, it was lo- a long, long story, to go to, to the question, but I didn't have to yeah. do that. Yeah. Thanks to my brother. And the, the, you know, what he saw in me, you know, my brother, Chris, he cleaned the toilets and he put up with all that bullshit and had to do all that, you know, wrapping mic cables and, you know, being the low man on the totem pole for a year, years, he did it. So I didn't have to. And, and, uh, I, I thank my brother regularly, you know, because without Chris there, I wouldn't be here, you know, who knows what I would be doing.
0: Sometimes I think when I hear stories like this, that, I don't know if you believe in, you know, like destiny and things like that, but I do think sometimes we are put here to fulfill certain things and give back to, um, society in particular ways. And that's just a gift, you know, that you were given that needed to be, to be used. Um, you know, and even down to the fact that your, your mum was, um, musical as well. You know, we, we have particular talents that we're sort of gifted with and it's up to us to go out and be of service and contribute in those ways that are given and that sounds like something that your story i really resonate with that you know it's not everybody's story but everybody has something that they can are here for to contribute to you know and it's sometimes figuring out what your gifts are instead of reaching for something that might be Com- completely I, I, it's like back to grassroots what is it that you're sort of is sort of put in front of you to to do right
1: yeah yeah i mean that's why i focused my my you know as i'm going through my career you know i mean so the omd thing first song i ever produced big hit they still played the damn song
0: yeah
1: second thing i produced was was the the steve winwood album called roll with it So I recorded and engineered and mixed the album Back in the High Life, which had Higher Love, which again was an album that my brother Chris was supposed to do. He didn't want to spend the time recording it because he was focusing on mixing. So the, the, the understanding was that I would record the album and then Chris would mix it. Well, I spent eight months recording the album and Steve really liked what I was doing. And Steve said, you know, I want you to mix the album. And I said, "Okay, let me talk to my brother about it. You know, and Chris's words. Doesn't matter which Lord Algae mixes it, as long as the Lord Algae mixes it. <laughs> and I'm certain that he ate those words. Because a year later I won a Grammy for Best Engineered Recording.
0: Yeah.
1: And he was the first one to come over and, and hug me and thank me and congratulate me. You know? Mm. And then the next album that I produced was Steve's next album. I won another Grammy for that. By this point, I'm sure my brother Chris is just like, well, you knock it off. <laughs> but he, again, he was super proud.
0: Yeah.
1: It wasn't 20 years later, and my brother Chris hadn't won any Grammys. It wasn't until 20 years later, I was able to repay the favor. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was hired by a band. Seven months in advance, they hired, they booked me. Two weeks before the gig, I got a call from the producer, and the producer's like, "We." can't come to Miami to mix the album would you consider coming to Los Angeles and I said well do you want my best mixes and they said of course we do and they said well you need to come to Miami and they're like we can't I just said I know a guy you know and I handed it off to Chris and they were fine with it Chris mixed the album and he killed it and he won a Grammy for it and the album was green day american idiot oh no way and finally i felt you know (laughs) that everything was right that everything was right in the world yes you know yeah you know and then from then my brother chris has been un-freaking-stoppable yeah you know
0: yeah i love it i love stories like that the puzzle pieces um and looking back on it it's incredible um all right finally because we are gonna wrap it up uh, this is still one of jennifer's questions and i just wanted to bring it back to hanson um to finish up and so she asks what challenges did you face when working on hanson's music and how did you overcome them were there any aspects of their sound that you aim to emphasize or enhance <laughs> any challenges
1: yeah that, uh, i mean the middle of nowhere was it, it the issue the challenge a middle of nowhere was taylor right
0: the voice
1: yeah and it, it has nothing to do with that he couldn't sing mm-hmm. or that he was out of tune or anything like that mm-hmm. it was just I, I don't remember how old he was how, how old was taylor when he yeah, when he, he did that like, album. Yeah,
0: 14 or 16 but it was
1: no, he was not sixteen. Fourteen. Not a chance. He was sixteen.
0: Fourteen.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it might have even been younger than Young that. Younger than that. But when you listen to the sound of his voice, it's it was it was very it was it was it was difficult. Mm. It was difficult to get the enunciation, you know, the way his vo- vocals were, mm. you know, because his voice was so darn high. You know what I mean? It is just something about a young, you know, somebody that young, you know, singing into a professional microphone and it just it was difficult to get it to sound where you could really understand all the words. You know, that was the real challenging part. Everything else was a piece of cake.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, but I re- I remember that. And you know, I still have, you know, those um the multi track tapes for, for that album, you know, and I forgot. It wasn't too long ago, you know, I went back and just for for shits and giggles, oh, it was yeah, a couple of months ago when I did that new version of Umbop, I went back and put up the original multitrack just to reference what I you know some of the things on it and i when I listened to Taylor's vocal, I was like, oh my god how how did I get this to sound so good yeah. And it- <laughs> you know but but again, it has nothing to do with him being a bad singer it was just the nature of his range and where he was and, you know, his voice it it had this, you know, he was so young. So his voice had a tightness to it and and the way the words were coming out, it was very difficult to understand what he was saying. So that was, that was quite challenging. You know, nowadays the guys are pros, you know, I mean, they make, they make amazing records and uh, Yeah. Yeah, And, and uh, I just, I just love those guys. Yes. I do. I do. And Ike is awesome. I mean, yeah. Ike is usually, you know, I call him Ike, you know, of course, every email he sends me, he signs it Isaac. Mm. But I, I, for some reason, I've just always called him Ike. But Isaac, you know, has always been my point, man. He's always the guy, you know, who I deal with when, when we're mixing, you know, every once in a while, you know, I'll, I'll hear from Taylor. But Taylor, you know, because Taylor's usually just like, Tom, it sounds great you know, whereas Isaac is, you know, he's the one, he kind of has the vision, Yeah. you know what I mean? You know, and then, you know, Zach, you know, it's usually, God, I remember I mixed the, I mixed the middle of nowhere and I think it was the Christmas album or maybe this time around. It was this time around. And Zach was like, do you mind changing the panning on the drum set? Cause I mix drums as if I'm looking at the drummer. So audience, called audience perspective. And because I've never seen him perform, I never knew that he was a lefty. Oh, <laughs> so I've been mixing his, 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 his mixing his stuff as if he was a righty.
0: Okay.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah. And, then, and then he's like, do you mind changing the perspective of the drums? I'm like, why? Because I'm a lefty. I'm like, whoops. Oh,
0: wow. I didn't know that that would yeah. make, that's incredible that it would make a difference to be at what? Yeah, but I guess it's a different sound coming from a different angle.
1: Is that, like... <laughs> well, it's it's just so, it's, you know, I always mix the hi-hat out of the right speakers because most guys are right. right. So if you're looking at yeah. a drum set, if you're, you know, and and again, I can have this this, this debate, and I, I've actually just mixed the band. I'm not going to say who it is. Okay. Where, where the drummer was adamant about mixing um, drummer's perspective, meaning if you're sitting, you know, like... Mm. I, whatever. No, you know. Again, I'm I'm not a musician. I'm a listener. It's one of the things I think I, why I've excelled in this business, is because I have listeners' ears, average ears. I don't know anybody that when they listen to music thinks they're in the band. Like in other words, the average person when they're listening to music, I'm I'm imagining it like me when you're listening to music you're imagining seeing the band in front of you. Yes. So therefore that's how I pan the music as if we're looking at the band. But th- this particular drummer was like adamant. I'm like, okay, I'm, and you know, I didn't even want to get into your 20 something years old and you know, <laughs> okay, I, it's again, I'm here to serve the music. But yeah, Zach was like, he's like, can you just, t- cause I'm a lefty and I'm like-
0: This whole time.
1: You know, I, just was like, oh, I probably should have asked that. <laughs> You know, whereas I did some stuff with Phil Collins. Now, Phil Collins I know is a lefty, you know what I mean? So, I I knew right away, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, wow, incredible. Well, thank you so much for giving up an hour of your time to come and talk to us today. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it, so, thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah, happy to do it, And, and again, love, you know, lots of love to the Hanson boys and the you know they keep they're still making great music and they continue making great music yeah so i, I wish them the best and and to, to all the fans out there thank you mm-hmm. thank you very much for supporting these guys and uh for everybody that's bought a Hanson album or more than one i thank you for the nickel <laughs> 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 but 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 thanks because without the fans that you know that the we 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 got nothing, and uh, yeah, you know you, yeah. your fans have picked a good band to follow because again they, you know, from middle of nowhere to stuff that they're making now, you can hear this wonderful, you know, musical um, journey that they've done, and um, boy, they they they're just making great music, and again, their music, they again, I keep saying it, they are the keepers of the groove. Yeah, you know they're that. just making great records so Lucky. cheers to all of you yeah cheers to australia
0: yay thank you come back and visit us soon
1: yeah look forward to it
0: <laughs> all right thank you
1: you're welcome